Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 6th. In today's news, federal researchers hypothesize that the coronavirus has mutated and a more contagious strain is spreading. As we're told to wash our hands, more than 2 million Americans still don't have indoor plumbing. And baseball is back, but in South Korea. First, though, the big idea. A former top vaccine official who was removed from his post last month alleges in a new 89-page whistleblower complaint that he was reassigned to a less prestigious role because he tried to prioritize science and safety over political expediency and raised health concerns over a drug repeatedly pushed by President Trump as a possible cure for coronavirus. Rick Bright, the former director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, was removed on April 20th after having served as a non-political director for nearly four years. He was reassigned to a much narrower role at the National Institutes of Health. Bright portrays himself in the complaint as trying to sound the alarm about the virus beginning in early January, and he has receipts. Emails are attached to his complaint. Bright says he called for the rapid development of treatments and vaccines, as well as the stockpiling of additional N95 masks and ventilators at a time when political leaders at HHS, including Secretary Alex Azar, appeared to him to be vastly underestimating the threat. He also notes that he clashed with his boss, Assistant HHS Secretary Bob Cadlick, for at least two years. Bright alleges in the complaint that Cadlick and others pressured him to buy drugs and medical products for the nation's stockpile of emergency medical equipment from companies that were linked politically to the administration and major donors to Trump, and that he resisted such efforts. HHS issued a brief comment last night that did not directly address any of these serious allegations. All it said is that they're deeply disappointed he's not focused on doing the job he was demoted into. Bright asserts in the complaint that he resisted pressure from HHS political leaders to make, quote, potentially harmful drugs widely available, particularly chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which is what Trump has repeatedly heralded and urged people to take, not just on Twitter, but in the White House briefing room. The complaint describes one such clash in mid-March after the company Bayer offered to donate 3 million pills of chloroquine to the national stockpile. BARDA officials raised alarms over the donation because of a lack of evidence over the drug's safety and efficacy. The Bayer pills came from facilities in Pakistan and India that were not approved by the FDA, and therefore not approved for use in the United States. In an email included with his complaint, a BARDA official wrote that there are safety liabilities associated with the drug and accepting the donation could send a signal that we are not concerned about the risk. The Bayer donation ultimately went forward after Bright says he received a, quote, urgent directive from a political appointee to make the drug widely accessible outside of hospital settings, and without close physician supervision. This also raised safety alarms with key officials at the FDA. Another second whistleblower complaint was leaked to us yesterday that spotlights serious problems inside Jared Kushner's operation. The president's son-in-law 
a senior advisor in the White House, has been relying on volunteers from consulting and private equity firms with little expertise in the tasks they were assigned, exacerbating chronic problems in obtaining supplies for hospitals and other critical national needs. About two dozen employees from places like McKinsey and BCG have volunteered their time to aid the Trump administration's response to the pandemic. Although some of the volunteers have relevant backgrounds and experience and are doing important work for no charge, many have been poorly matched with their assigned tasks, including those assigned to secure personal protective equipment known as PPE for hospitals across the country. This second whistleblower complaint was submitted by one of the volunteers who has since left the Kushner Group. It was filed with the House Oversight Committee. This person spoke with us on the condition of anonymity for fear of retribution from the administration, and key elements of their complaint were confirmed by six different administration officials and another outside advisor to the effort. The second whistleblower alleges that the team responsible for PPE had little success in helping the government secure equipment because none of the team members had any significant experience in either healthcare, procurement, or supply chain operations. In addition, none of the volunteers had relationships with manufacturers or a clear understanding of how customs works or the FDA's rules. Supply chain volunteers were instructed to fast-track protective equipment leads from so-called VIPs. The list of VIPs included conservative journalists friendly to the White House, especially from Fox News. Fox and Friends host Brian Kilmeade, for example, called two people he knew in the administration to pass along a lead about someone trying to sell PPE in an effort he said to be helpful. Fox News host Janine Pirro also repeatedly lobbied the administration for a specific New York hospital to receive a large quantity of masks. Her request was put at the top of the pile, taking priority over places that had much more dire needs. Even as the volunteer group struggled to procure the PPE, about 30% of the key supplies, including masks, in our national stockpile of emergency medical equipment went towards standing up a separate Kushner-led effort to establish drive through testing sites nationwide. To great fanfare in the Rose Garden, Kushner originally promised thousands of testing sites would quickly be up and running, but only 78 ever materialized, and the stockpile was burned down to supply 44 of those sites for just five to 10 days. The team of volunteers focused on PPE had trouble developing manufacturer relationships and making inroads with brokers, in part because they were all using personal email addresses rather than official government email addresses. So manufacturers weren't sure that these people actually represented the government. In addition to the already challenging circumstances, the whistleblower complaint says that members of Kushner's teams are making minimal attempts to socially distance from one another, putting the employees and the volunteers at risk. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, a research paper from government scientists at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, reports that one strain of the novel coronavirus has emerged in Europe and become dominant around the planet. This has led these researchers to believe that the virus has mutated 
to become more contagious. The bold hypothesis, however, was immediately met with skepticism by many infectious disease experts, including the head of the NIH. And there is no scientific consensus that any of the innumerable mutations in the virus so far have changed the general contagiousness or lethality of COVID-19. The Los Alamos scientists examined a global database of strains of the virus that causes the disease, and they found that one strain featuring a mutation dubbed Spike D614G quickly outcompeted all the other strains once it appeared. The mutation affects the structure of a protein called the spike protein that's critical to the virus's ability to infect healthy human cells. The researchers believe this structural change enhances its infectivity. The paper will now have to survive the intense scrutiny of a research community trying to deliver urgently needed information while remaining scientifically rigorous. It's also a reminder of how much we still don't know about this contagion. The consensus has been until now that strains of the coronavirus are functionally the same, even if they look genetically different. The fact that the coronavirus is mutating at all is not surprising because all viruses mutate as they replicate. Virologists have been impressed so far by how relatively stable this novel coronavirus has been. That's been giving them hope that a vaccine could be especially effective because even the seasonal flu looks vastly different across the planet. But the extent of the spread of the coronavirus has certainly given it ample opportunities to evolve. And we're learning of another potential cause for concern. 15 children in New York City have developed a serious inflammatory condition that is possibly linked to the virus. These children from ages 2 to 15 are experiencing persistent fevers and elevated inflammatory markers, similar to the syndrome known as Kawasaki disease. More than half had a rash, abdominal pain, vomiting, or diarrhea. Fewer than half had respiratory symptoms. All of the patients described in a new bulletin issued last night were admitted to intensive care units and have required cardiac or respiratory support, including five kids who are on mechanical ventilators. Fortunately, none have died yet. This is the same condition that the National Health Service warned British doctors they were seeing around London last week. The emergence of this new problem suggests that the coronavirus may be a trigger for some kids to develop Kawasaki disease. Four of the 15 New York kids have tested positive so far for the coronavirus. Still, though, it's important to note that the chance of a child becoming critically ill from this virus is blessedly low. But that's no solace for people who are seeing it in their own children. Number two, infection and death rates from this contagion have been ramping up big in rural areas, particularly in the Deep South and other areas plagued by persistent poverty. As I mentioned yesterday, the Navajo Nation now ranks as one of the worst hotspots in the world per capita. According to a report released last year, more than 2 million of our fellow Americans do not have indoor plumbing. Far greater numbers do not believe that their water supplies are safe or they cannot afford to pay for them. Black and Latino households are twice as likely as white households to lack a tap and a flushable toilet. Among Native Americans, the chance of having to rely on an outhouse to go to the bathroom and a communal drinking water source is 19 times higher than for white people. 
Those groups are also more likely to suffer from diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity, all three conditions that put people at much higher risk of developing severe complications from COVID-19. For the Chavezes who work the fields of California's fertile San Joaquin Valley, bottled water is the toilet paper of the pandemic for them. It's an everyday necessity that has vanished from supermarket shelves because otherwise they don't have water. In the Navajo Nation, where about a third of the population lacks indoor plumbing, volunteers are trying to create public hand-washing stations by repurposing detergent bottles as makeshift faucets. And the virus has exacerbated distrust of the local water for people like Jessica Endicott, who lives in the tiny community of Turkey Creek in eastern Kentucky. She says every single time that she bathes or showers, her skin turns red and itchy every time. Having plundered several major cities, the coronavirus is taking deep root in marginalized rural communities, especially as governors in red states rush to reopen over the vocal objections of public health experts. Many of these places lack clean water, making it impossible for residents to shelter at home or wash their hands frequently. This pandemic is underscoring the shameful racial and socioeconomic disparities in the richest country on earth. And now, one festering public health problem is exacerbating a new, more acute one. Number three. South Korean baseball stadiums are usually filled with incessant chants and fan sing-alongs, even more than in our ballparks. For opening day in Seoul yesterday, pushed back two months because of the coronavirus, Videos of fans watching the games on their television sets at home were projected on the jumbotrons. The leathery pop of a strike into the catcher's mitt was no different than before. A solid hit to center field still had that satisfying clap. But little else was familiar as Korea's professional baseball league began play in this sports-starved season of COVID-19. There were no fans, although there were cheerleaders, all wearing masks, as they danced before 25,000 empty seats in Seoul's Jamsil Stadium. The first pitch was not a pitch at all. It was walked to home plate by a nine-year-old boy walking inside a plastic balloon that was decorated with the seams of a baseball. It was quickly dubbed the first socially distant first pitch. ESPN, so starved for content, plans to broadcast these Korean games at least six days a week, until the American version returns. Now, baseball in South Korea is a symbol of just how much better and more effective their government and president have handled this crisis than the Trump administration has. Aggressive and early action, including widespread testing and contact tracing, have managed to flatten their curve. South Korea reported zero domestic cases of the coronavirus for a second consecutive day yesterday. Zero new cases. Players in South Korea will be subject to a regimen of daily temperature checks, including when they wake up in the morning and before they leave for the stadium. And a great catch or home run will not be followed by high fives or handshakes. Such physical contact among players is strictly banned, except you're allowed to touch players when you tag them out. No spitting is allowed in these games, and umpires and coaches are all required to wear face masks and sanitary gloves as long as they're in the stadium. Now, watching South Korean baseball certainly isn't the same as watching our guys play. 
But it was definitely way more fun to see something live than watching reruns of decades-old MLB games, which I will confess I've been doing more nights than I'd care to admit. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 6th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.